The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. This time, brought to you in collaboration with our sister title, BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, we talk all things Neanderthal with Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. Rebecca dispels the common idea of Neanderthals as brutish and primitive in her new book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. She spoke to Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus. First of all, can you just give us a brief overview of who were the Neanderthals? Okay, so um, thanks for having me. And the Neanderthals are um, 
Well, they are many things. <laughs> um, from an evolutionary point of view, they are hominins. So that is um, within our um, sort of direct uh, homo line of, of descent through the homo genus. Um, and for a long time, they were believed to be not really anything to do with us being directly ancestral, um, but like a sort of a branch, like cousins that went on their way and we didn't have much to do with. But that's changed uh, now. And it turns out that they were at least in part, um, part of our direct ancestry. So that's where they sit um, in an evolutionary sense. But um, yeah, who, who were they? They were also the first hominins that we realized that there was such a thing as a hominin and um, so they've been with us for like 160 years and um, all the way through the development of human evolutionary science and um, so they're very interesting for that reason as well because they give a really good um sort of case study for how our how our ideas change but also how the methods uh, that we use to investigate them have completely transformed as well where and when did they live um Neanderthals for a long time were sort of believed to be European um, hominins and that's partially true still but they are much more um, a Eurasian species than used to be understood so not not in East Asia as we understand at the moment um, but they extended basically from Wales through to um, you know Siberia and um central asia as well they're there they're down in the near east all around the the mediterranean and um, so they had an extremely wide geographical range there's there's not many environments that they weren't you know familiar with perhaps extreme deserts extreme mountain altitude and jungles really are the places where they don't seem to have been um in terms of chronology um we start to see like proto Neanderthals emerging somewhere around 400,000 years ago. Um, but they really uh, become clearly visible in fossil terms and in archaeological terms based on the, the artifacts um, that they were making around 350,000 years ago. And you go all the way through to when they appear to, to disappear from the fossil record and the archaeology, it's around 40,000 years. There doesn't seem to be anything after that, um, except their genes did continue and are still in billions of people today. Um, so they are here in one sense. <laughs> so we presumably then have interbred with the Neanderthals if they're in our, our genes. Yes. Um, this, again, was one of these, you know, as I said, sort of things that's really changed that it was believed for a long time um, that there was no direct um, interaction. That was one theory that came out of um, human evolution as, as a field um, that Homo sapiens, so that's our, um, our species, um, were believed to disperse from Africa um, and not really have much to do with Neanderthals except in terms of replacing them. And that was believed to happen around 40,000, maybe 35. So, you know, that was that was one idea. There was another um, very different theory, which was that hominins uh, dispersed very early from Africa and then 
lived in different regions of the old world and sort of had a continuous but sort of slow um, genetic interchange between them, gene flow basically, which led to um, Homo sapiens sort of arising in different regions around the world, um, you know, in in a contemporary way. But neither of those things has really turned out to be um, true, but they, they, it's almost a mix of, of those two theories that is, is um, what it really looks like today. So we, we know now that um, hominins did leave Africa very early. It looks like they were in China, for example, by two million years ago. Um, this is a very archaic species, um, still making artefacts. Um, and those archaic populations remained in Eurasia. Some of them potentially went extinct, but others didn't. But the chronology for Homo sapiens has got a lot older in Africa. So now um, we have fossils that um, are really beginning to look like us in in some features um, as early as 300,000 years ago in Morocco. Um, And sort of by 150,000 years ago, um, you see fossils that, that really do look essentially like um, living people Um, and what's also changed is not only is there this greater antiquity in Africa um, but it looks like Homo sapiens also dispersed out into Eurasia a lot earlier than we used to think so now we have evidence um, in the Near East about 180,000 years ago um, and in China somewhere between 80 and 120,000 years ago and people were in Australia already by 65,000 years ago so this sort of the the history of of our dispersal has just got dramatically older which means that the the scope of time for interactions with archaic hominins and uh, others like Neanderthals that evolved in Eurasia um, has just grown hugely. You know, the the, the amount of time um, potentially when there could have been interaction is, is much bigger. And we see that reflected in the genetics. So there is not only evidence for interaction late on, around 40,000 years. It seems to be that there were multiple phases where things were um, going on significantly earlier as well. It's very hard to pin it down mm-hmm. um, in terms of what what those interactions mean in terms of you know social contexts um what we don't see is any evidence that the neanderthals were like entirely assimilated by mm-hmm. us um late on and that's you know that's why they disappeared we, we didn't entirely sort of amalgamate them into us um but there was definitely um periods of time when they when we were meeting them and other hominins in eurasia as well the denisovans is another example they're like a sister group to neanderthals um and definitely baby making was happening (laughs) (laughs) so in my biology lessons at school I was taught that if two creatures could have a baby that was itself fertile then that meant they were the same species so is that the case here are we the same species as Neanderthals I think that the thing is that species definitions are complex and when you're dealing with um extinct or you know animals you can't observe in life mm-hmm. um it's even harder you're you're looking you know for for decades for over a century we had we only had the bones and then some stones <laughs> <laughs> um and once you start to get the genetic evidence it does become a lot more complex so i mean 
fundamentally Neanderthals, um, although we sort of tend to have this view of oh they're they're an ancient human species, if you if you're talking about the the wider context of human evolution, they are extremely close to us. You know, um, you know they're, they're no no kind of missing link or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they between between us and um, sort of ancient. Um, apes or anything it's completely different they are extremely close they evolved very recently just Mm. as we did um we the 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 homo uh the branch of the homo genus that was going to lead to us um only split from the branch that was leading to neanderthals around six seven eight hundred thousand years ago which is nothing um really Mm. and um so we know that there was interbreeding and those hybrid children could produce their own children, um, otherwise we wouldn't see the genes today. Um, so they had to be fertile. So on one basis, yeah, that's the same species. But Neanderthals were definitely physically different, um, and that is maintained right through to the point at which they disappear. You know, we never started looking a lot like Neanderthals, and they didn't look a lot like us. Um, so there's definitely some kind of separation and people can perhaps think of it more like um, some species which can which can interbreed because they are very close. For example, um, a really good example that is used uh, is yaks and cattle. You know, they, they have been separated for quite a long time, but they're still able to, to um, produce offspring um, and viable offspring. So that's, that's a better way to think about it, that we are populations. They're called allotaxa that are very close um mm-hmm. but uh, still distinctive in in some way physically or behaviorally okay i see uh, so now i've got a question from the magazine team uh which is uh what percentage of our dna is neanderthal uh, it depends whose dna you're asking about <laughs> um overall um it looks like somewhere between one and three percent something like that although it depends on the studies and the samples because as with genetics um certainly when you're talking about ancient samples every new study is is bringing data to to a small number of of samples we already have and so that can really change the picture um and also the techniques that are being used can pull out slightly different figures but it seems um from the initial studies which was 10 years ago we only sort of got the evidence for this um the the percentage has shrunk slightly from sort of like oh four maybe um it's come down to sort of around two and a half um something like that on average but it looks like um not uh not everybody has the same amount so first of all people from a sub-saharan background apparently don't have neanderthal dna that was obtained from ancient interactions they, there are some recent studies that suggest they might have a little bit, but I think um, the overall consensus and interpretation of that is that um, that is probably material that's come from much more recent interactions with Eurasian. So it's kind of coming back in and, um, in a different route. But in terms of uh, Eurasian people um, or people of Eurasian backgrounds, so that's including uh, people from Oceania, Australian Aboriginal people um, and Indigenous people from um, the Americas. Um, it looks like in Asia, so the, the more Easter you are, the more Neanderthal DNA you are likely to have, um, wow. which is 
interesting because you know a lot of people because of these these old sort of ideas that Europe was the Neanderthals homeland that's that's quite surprising for people and um, but that's because the current population in Europe um is largely actually a neolithic population that came in so the the original hunter gatherer peoples that had these these interactions did not survive for a large part in Europe um they were sort of successively replaced by later waves of other hunter gatherers in in the later ice age um and then there was a big shift um uh with neolithic peoples coming in from the near east so that's why that's different but also it looks like um not everybody all around the world has the same parts of the neanderthal genome it looks like different parts have gone into different populations and that may be to do with what I said about there being different phases of interaction and where those happened. We don't know. You you can't see from the genes exactly where, you know, particular phase of interbreeding happened. You can make a guess, you know, if you can, if you see a fossil um, Homo sapiens bone in China and it's got Neanderthal DNA and it's 40,000 years old where you can say that, okay, that probably didn't happen in France, you know, but, but there is an interesting case in that there is a fossil from Romania aged around 39, 40,000 years old, um, which has 11% Neanderthal DNA, which is enormous. And that is a reflection of that person having a Neanderthal ancestor within four to six generations, which is basically the same distance between us and the Victorian people who found the Neanderthals. It's very little time. Yeah. But for hunter-gatherers, um, if they're highly mobile they could be covering thousands of kilometres in 200 years. Mm. So we don't know where that interaction in that person's, you know, recent ancestry, where that actually happened. It might have been in Eastern Europe, but it might not have been. So it's pretty complicated. Right. And uh, so does this Neanderthal DNA, has, has this changed us in any noticeable way? I mean, I once heard that uh, that's, reason we have peanut allergies but I'm not sure if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of the work on exactly what came over to us and um, what that might mean is really cutting edge at the moment and um, it's it's largely coming out initially it was coming out of comparing um, the antitol genome with medical databases which are really you know they're focused on pathology stuff that's wrong with people and so that a lot of that data is what was being picked out um so we don't we have a lot less um certain ideas about the influence of of other aspects of of their genes um on us um but what does seem to be the case is that um genes to do with immunity are one of the 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 areas that seem that our bodies basically seem to be like oh yeah we'll have some of that we'll keep that um because it was useful you know i mean it's it's quite easy to imagine if you have populations of early homo sapiens people that were coming out of um the africa continent um which would have its own endemic you know load of diseases and 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 pathogens and parasites and all this stuff just as Eurasia did um but those populations would not have been you know exposed to the to the Eurasian um sort of nasties as it were um and so it looks like 
if there was interbreeding with Neanderthals, um, some of the immunities, uh, or at least the the framework for dealing with stuff, um, was what um, was useful to those populations coming into Eurasia. Although, you know, I mean, we're talking on slow timescales. We don't know how fast um, the Homo sapiens populations were actually moving into Eurasia. Um, but certainly that would have been useful because they would have encountered stuff that, you know, their bodies had no defences against. Um, so that's definitely one aspect. So I've now got a question from Twitter. Donald asks, how far east did the Neanderthals get and how much hybridization took place en route with non-Neanderthal species? Um, we don't know how far east they got. Um, the boundaries that we draw on our maps as archaeologists obviously they're always temporary because <laughs> it depends <laughs> on where we found things um it's a little bit easier with the west because you've got the atlantic ocean and i don't <laughs> think anybody's proposing that they they cross that um <laughs> but um but for the eastwards extension it's not clear at the moment we have evidence from central asia um and also further east than that into siberia and the, the most easterly site so far is um Denisova cave um where we know that they were interacting with this other closely related um species uh the Denisovans so Denisovan it looks like the branch that led to us separated from the Neanderthals about as I said sort of 700,000 years ago then not long after that the Neandersovans, as uh, people are casually ca- calling them <laughs> um then split themselves and Neanderthals sort of potentially were more western eurasian and denisovans more eastern eurasian but um we're only just beginning to unpick that because denisovans were only found 10 years ago um based on the genetic identification from tiny scrap of bone um from this cave it was completely unexpected and since then people have been you know scrambling to find more and especially to find actual you know bones that we can see what their anatomy was um and there's a there's a jaw uh from tibet that looks like it probably is um a denisovan jaw that's based on um on a i think genetical protein analysis and um, that shows that they definitely were if not denisovans they were very close to them um and so that that's definitely further east but how far the neanderthals actually got is an open question because is denisova cave where we know that the um, Denisovans were living um, at other times and we can see in multiple individuals from that cave that there was some interbreeding going on, although we don't know if it was actually there. Again, there's that problem of where the interbreeding itself happened. But we can see it in multiple individuals there. Um, and, some, you know, there's, there's even this absolutely jaw-dropping find that there is a first-generation hybrid from that cave, um, a girl, uh, probably a girl, um, that uh, was nicknamed Denny um and you know the chances of finding the child of a Neanderthal and a Denisovan so that's the mother and the father um seemed so ridiculously unlikely that the the researchers didn't really believe it at first they thought their data was wrong um but no it's true and um so definitely something was going on close there but in her in the ancestry of her father there's also evidence of of more ancient mixing and things so is Denisova really like showing us that that region is a borderland where it's like a melting pot or did Neanderthals go further east still we don't know there's 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 hints that um 
there may be archaeological assemblages in China that look a lot like the archaeology we find in the Altai region, which is where this cave Denisova is. So we know Neanderthals were in this cave and in other caves in that region too, in the Altai. Um, but is it possible that they actually got a lot further east and we just have not found any fossils yet? It is possible. Um, it's a very intriguing idea. And certainly the the environment should not have been a barrier um, because that would have been um you know just around the period at which we're talking sort of around 90,000 to 50,000 years um that was just like a step super highway going you know between France right the way to Beringia you know this this area of land that was uncovered during low sea levels between Asia and then and North America and wow. so yeah I mean nobody's saying at the moment that Neanderthals got over there but um ecologically there was no reason why they wouldn't have got a lot further east, except if the other hominin species that were in East Asia were providing a barrier. Um, they may have been, but we can definitely see that there was also interbreeding. So it's it's a really tricky question. So the common uh, image of Neanderthals tends to be the brutish, violent species. that aren't, They're not very clever and they just sort of grunt at each other and poke things with pointy sticks. Um, is that is that a fair image of them? Is that what they were really like? No, not at all. And I think I think we like we want to keep that image because it's useful for us. But in terms of scientific evidence, I think that's really not been the case for a long time now. Um, you know, Neanderthals are are potent clickbait for people you know people really like knowing about neanderthals it's like what i said it's because they've been there all the way through since we first started to understand what human evolution was um, and they've been this touchstone for people um so they're very popular a lot of archaeology about them does get into the media but it's not always the case that sort of the broader picture doesn't always make its way in because it's complex you know um for all of the really big discoveries that do get in the papers and it's like wow amazing um there's this like entire spread of of other data that's been slowly accumulating um that builds up this picture of them as completely different to the the notions of you know ug kind of stereotypes um it's very different now and i that's what i've tried to do with the book is to give people an impression of the totality of the evidence but take take people on like a deep dive into particular aspects and particular sites that have really transformed what we understand about neanderthals uh, because it's hard to to sort of keep up it's hard for for researchers to keep up with everything you know never mind anyone else um so no i mean like pretty much any realm of their life you want to sort of talk about um the the level of i guess ingenuity or skill or flexibility or creativity is way beyond how they have been you know been portrayed in in this cliched way as as that they were sort of just the failures destined to to you know die out um just waiting for us to come along and replace them um and you know that we were this amazing you know um, sexy replacement for them and and it's it's very it's not like that you know there's definitely differences um but overall i would say that they are much closer to our understanding of a hunter and gatherer lifestyle you know they were foragers you know they weren't sort of 
scrabbling around for scraps at the edge of a hyena's kill and stuff. They were they were top top hunters in their environment. They were craftspeople with many materials. They organised their space within their sites um, and through the landscape by separating different stages of their activities, whether it was butchery or making and using and repairing and resharpening their tools. Um, they were very systematic, very organised. Um, so, you know, it's it's certainly not the cliched view. Uh, I guess the the way they looked sort of had an impact on on what we think about them to an extent because they've got those quite sort of heavy brows, don't they? Yeah, I think a lot of that was to do with people's um, people's biases in the you know when they were first found. Um, of course, they were there had barely even been any um, fossil uh, apes found at the time. It was all very new. Um, and Neanderthals did have features that looked more um, primitive in a sense of being um, more similar to an archaic form that they would be expected to look more like apes. So that was the initial comparison. But at the same time, um, early prehistorians were very quick to jump in with really racist comparisons um, of, of living peoples and, and you know, compare Neanderthals to them, but also then, you know, the Neanderthals were subtly then used to prop up, you know, racist and, and colonialist viewpoints on, on the, the humanity or lack of it um, amongst living populations. So that's another issue. But in terms of their sort of broad anatomy did they really look you know sort of less evolved or whatever they were just as evolved as us um we have our own weird foibles in terms of our um derived features if you want to call it that um just as they had their own features that were derived and not the same as our common ancestor with them um so you know our faces that are shoved right underneath our foreheads like you know, little Pekingese dogs, um, in a way, they, they, they're weird, you know, it doesn't, that's not a form that, that was going to be evolved towards as necessarily better. Um, so, and that's something else that's changed a lot is that the more sophisticated, um, biological understanding and, and the, and methodologies, you know, biomechanics and, and modeling and things like this, it looks like a lot of the features that Neanderthals had that we used to believe were perhaps primarily about um, extreme cold adaptations. They may have been um, more or at least as much to do with um, very intensive lifestyles, uh, respiratory stuff, basically. So like um, huge lungs um, were not necessarily about sort of getting and warming air up it was just about getting oxygen into to bodies that were hefty um and that that had a higher um need for more calories therefore you need more oxygen to burn those calories and things like that so our understanding of of the reasons why they looked as they did um has kind of changed from being like a throwback to being about an organism that is really quite honed for a particular kind of lifestyle um in northern latitudes although it's not always glacial of course we have to remember that as well so do we know how smart they were were they as intelligent as ancient humans more so less so um i think in some realms they definitely were for example if you're talking about the stone tools and the lithics as we call them their artifacts um i think in terms of overall 
comparisons with contemporary Homo sapiens, if you take it, you know, back to 350,000 years um, and look forward, um, it's extremely similar. Um, you know, there's there used to be ideas that um, that blades, for example, sort of long, elongated flakes, twice as long as they are, um, thin, uh, wide rather, that that was like a, an amazing invention by Homo sapiens and that's what, you know, made us really cool. Um, but that's that doesn't look the case. It's the the archaeological record itself has become a lot more nuanced. So it looks like Neanderthals were doing a lot of things that used to be regarded as, you know, our inventions. They were doing it as well, or some some cases they did it first. <laughs> um, so things like compound technology, so where you have. Uh, tools made of more than one piece and you either bind them together or you stick them with an adhesive um neanderthals were definitely doing that and they they invented that themselves i mean early homo sapiens in africa were also doing it with different kinds of adhesives but it, there's no evidence that they learned that from us um they were doing it in their own eurasian world so for example they were not using um, the same plant resins as we see in uh, southern africans early homo sapiens sites instead they had worked out how to cook birch bark into birch tar um which is not that easy um it's not as difficult as people used to think people used to think you needed to have like a covered pot and you know completely seal it you don't have to but you still got to watch the fire you still got to watch the level of oxygen because if you have too much oxygen it just burns the bark um you've got to have some kind of container to catch the um the tar dripping out and you just have to understand that process in the first place you know it's almost like a, an alchemy you know material transmutation that you have to be able to conceptualize that um and just recently we've also seen um at an Italian site that they were using plant uh, resin, potentially pine, um, I think, and mixing it with beeswax, which is amazing. Um, you know, and pine resin by itself is not very good as a glue because it's quite brittle. But if you mix it with beeswax, it becomes as good as birch tar, which is an excellent adhesive. Um, so, you know, they were not only had this uh, ability to to conceptualize composite technology to understand material changes and transmutation but also they must have been experimenting to some extent and they understood the process of mixing as well so those things are things we, that we definitely see early homo sapiens people doing in africa with different substances but the neanderthals are doing it too and we can see in other um aspects of of what they were doing for example, they they were interested in pigments. Um, what exactly, uh, you know, the motivation was is unclear, but I prefer to call it um, aesthetics. I think they had an aesthetic sense. Um, they were interested in visual properties, tactile properties. Um, and with some pigments in, in a couple of places, it looks like they were mixing pigments as well. So that sort of understanding of material substance and mixing we see it in different realms of what they were doing but if we're looking for differences then technologically there's a few things that it looks like early homo sapiens people were doing that neanderthals didn't one is heat treating stone so that's where you um you basically in a controlled way you put your stone that you want to nap into a fire or an or, or a flake that you've already done and let it heat and it will transform to some extent the um the structure of the rock and make it sort of easier to get nice shallow bits coming off it and it allows you to control your napping so we don't see neanderthals doing that 
Um, we also don't see them really going in for um, what's known as pressure flaking, which is connected to heat treatment, where you sort of, instead of hitting your stone tool, you apply pressure and almost sort of squeeze little flakes off it by pushing. Um, they don't really seem to have done that either. Um, but I don't know how different conceptually heating stone is from heating birch bark to make tar. It's, it's not that different. Um, and, you know, perhaps they didn't need to do those things. But um, what we don't really see, although they definitely seem to have had projectile weapons, as in thrown spears, um, some of them may be with stone tips, although we don't have an actual preserved object that has its tip on it we only have wooden spears but we have examples of stone tips like stuck in animals and things um and also stone tips with impact damage so that evidence is there but we don't seem to have anything from neanderthals that points clearly to um small projectiles so like um darts or very small lightweight spears that you would use a spear thrower with um, which is like a sort of a, a stick with a little hook at the back and you slot your spear into that and then you throw it and it effectively lengthens the throwing length of your arm and allows the spear to go further. Um, so we don't see that. And we also don't see any evidence that is clearly Neanderthal of um, bow and arrow technology. So that could have been something that was going on. There's, I do talk in the book about there's a quite a strange, very mysterious site in southeast France, which is older than um any evidence we have of homo sapiens coming into western europe where there are tiny little lithic points that can only really have been either for darts or arrows but we don't know who made those um it's at a time when we would only expect neanderthals to be there but the 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 amount of tiny points is beyond anything we see in any Neanderthal site. It's not that they couldn't make those points, they definitely could, and they sometimes made little ones, but not that little and not so many of them. So that's a weird case. Um, and it could be that that's like a cryptic, as in invisible expansion of Homo sapiens that we can't see anywhere else. It's just that, you know, that one site that that's visible. I don't know. I mean, Everybody wants to know what the DNA from that site is going to be because there's no fossils, but because because techniques are so incredible now, you can take DNA samples from the sediments in your cave. So it's quite possible that we might find out who was responsible for that. Um, but yeah, so that's in terms of technology, that's different. And um, it does look later on um you know from 40,000 42,000 if you look at what's going on with homo sapiens assemblages or assemblages that we believe are made by homo sapiens that there is like a hyping up of the aesthetics going on the pigment is there but there's more of it they're doing more stuff with it there's um more clearly pierced objects or you know worked objects that don't have a clear function so the evidence for symbolism sort of does really balloon after neanderthals not that they didn't have things that sort of can be understood in that way but they are much rarer so something is different um and it's potentially to do with connectivity between groups and across regional populations i think that's greater amongst the early homo sapiens people right so does that mean they had some sort of concept of art maybe um well there is there's 
as I said, I like to I prefer to think of it as aesthetics because for Western people, art has a really specific sort of meaning. We think of art as something you look at that someone else did, you know, um, and art doesn't have to be like that art as in an aesthetic sense is can be about the production it can be about the the experience of it the sensory experience of producing something and art can be meaningful during the process and not really afterwards um you know it doesn't have to be like this an oeuvre that we look at in a gallery you know um so that that kind of colors our view of what art could be um what we definitely see in the antitoles, as I said, is that they're interested in pigment. We don't have any evidence that they were using, for example, ochres, natural mineral pigments, um, for uh, hafting adhesives, as we see definitely was happening in um, Homo sapiens uh, groups in, in Southern Africa. They were using pigment in that way. Um, also for colouring, but it had a functional purpose, but we can't see a clear functional purpose in Neanderthal sites. Um, with some black pigments, there could be um, an explanation. For example, manganese is like a natural mineral substance that we find, you, you find it just by accident in, in some sites, but certainly in some Neanderthal sites, they were definitely collecting this. Um, and in some sites, there's loads of it. And, we, you know, you can see like wear traces on these little blocks of black pigment. So they were, they were rubbing it on soft surfaces and hard surfaces. We don't know what it was. Um, and it was proposed uh, maybe this was, you know, art. But then another uh, research um, team did some really nice work and found out that manganese um, can act as an accelerant for lighting fires um, and it can you know prolong your fire and you know things like this so perhaps that did have a functional purpose as well but then there is another site from Belgium where um, the Neanderthals were collecting like a very dark grey stone um, that has no fire lighting properties it's very soft so you wouldn't really nap with it but if you rub it on your skin it leaves this nice colour. Um, so that's a better candidate for, you know, no other explanation than something aesthetic. Um, but yeah, it's complex. But then you, you end up with sort of, you know, um, umming and ahhing about is it or isn't it? But then you find particular cases where it's very hard to argue that there was anything other than something, you know, a bit more interesting happening for example, at um, a site in Italy, uh, Grotta Formani, um, there is a fossil shell um, that was, so it's nothing to do with food. It's a little mollusk and a little uh, shell um, that was sourced from a fossil outcrop um, 100 kilometers away. Um, so it's been carried. And moreover, um, it has red pigment on the outside, not on the inside. And there also seems to be a little sort of trace of wear around where um, sort of the hole uh, was, although it's broken. Um, so that object is pretty... <laughs> if that was found in a Homo sapiens site, people would be like, oh, yeah, you know, obviously something symbolic. Obviously, you know, that was that was threaded or, it, you know, it was, it was worn or something. I, I don't want to say it's jewellery or it was worn because you can't always tell that. Um, but that that was something that a Neanderthal took the time to carry around, put pigment on. The pigment itself came from like 40 kilometres away. 
Um, so that had been moved around the landscape and Neanderthals were mobile people. You know, they did not stay anywhere probably beyond a few weeks, a month or so at the most. Um, everything they carried, they had to carry on their backs, you know, so you're not going to move stuff, even if it's small, unless there is something that is important or meaningful. So I think finds like that, although they are completely unique, we shouldn't ignore them because they're one-offs. So I think there is something there, but what we don't see so far with Neanderthals is any clear representational imagery of the kind, you know, there's no horses running along cave walls and, you know, that kind of thing. There have been claims for... um, for pigment uh, lines and sort of pigment being on painted on walls, but um, so far the the contexts where that's been claimed are slightly debated because it's very difficult to date um, cave art. Um, you have you end up usually having to if and if it's black, then sometimes you can date like you know if it's carbon, you can date that. But um, but for other pigments, you have to date the carbonate deposits that go over it or next to it if there's nothing on it um and that can be very complicated um in terms of making sure that there's no contamination um, especially if it's not like a flat surface that you're just dating if it's like little bobbly concretions it gets tricky and so there have recently been um, some sites from spain claimed to be um you know well in excess of 40,000, 50 sometimes up to 60 um but they are they are disputed on the basis of um, being very anomalous within those caves, which are filled with later art or art which is believed to be much later work of Homo sapiens people. Um, so that remains to be seen. I think I think um, to be entirely solid, I think we, we need more uh, cases, really. Um, but in terms of the, the conceptual aspect of making markings and using pigment, there's no reason why it couldn't be Neanderthals because we know that they did those things and they made markings apparently on caves um, uh, in the floor of of a cave in Gibraltar. It looks like there is intentional sort of gouging of of, um, sort of almost a grid shape. Um, So that's one, again, that's just one site and we don't see anywhere else so far where they're marking walls. But it's it's not outside the realm of possibility. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They're, they're a foil for what we want to be, what we're afraid of. Um, they've played that role for so long and they refuse to sort of sit still and be put in a box. I like that. I like that. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Now, this one might be an impossible question to answer, (laughs) but... (laughs) Is there any evidence that they might have had some form of spoken language? Oh, yes. I would say there is pretty decent evidence now that they had a form of vocal communication. That is not the same as language. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, when we talk about language, you're talking about what we're doing right now, yeah. you know, sitting and <laughs> chatting and complicated sentence structure, all of that. Uh, I don't think we can say that. Um, but in terms of like their anatomy, um, it looks like they could probably produce very similar sounds to us. Maybe a slight difference is here and there, but, but they had a decent vocal range. They could control their breath, you know? Um, and what's, I think a really, really strong indicator is that, um, analysis of their, their ears, their inner ears, um, the sort of the bony uh, canals and stuff that's preserved um, that suggests that although the shape is slightly different to ours um, that's just because their skulls were different and actually their hearing was attuned to the same frequencies ours is which is primarily focusing in on the sound and the frequencies of human speech so that is highly suggestive that they you know some form of vocal communication was extremely important um and also if if that is in them and in us it's likely that it was in the common ancestor going back you know six seven hundred eight hundred thousand years ago that that vocalizing was a key part of social life but the information content that is you know part of that is very difficult for us to assess you know, we can we can say, well, how difficult was it to learn particular kinds of technologies, for example? Um, and people will argue about that. Um, I think when you're looking at complex procedures, for example, the composite technology where you have you have to know how to nap the stone. Um, you have to know how to if you have a wooden handle, you have to know how to work the wood and then you have to know how to make the adhesive and how to put all that together. Is it possible to simply do what um, what primates do, what chimpanzees do, and just copy? Can you get all that right just by observing and copying? Or is there some level of um, informal teaching? And if so, is there some kind of vocal communication happening? So I would say there probably is something going on like that. Um, 
but yeah that that's definitely one of i think we've gone beyond the did they talk now they did in some form but what did they talk about is Mm -hmm. yeah that's the next issue (laughs) (laughs) so what what might they have sounded like um i don't know (laughs) uh there's there is a famous clip from a bbc documentary of like this reconstructed neanderthal screaming basically um (laughs) based on sort of trying to trying to mimic like the size of the lung capacity and you know the positioning of the throat and all this but i i think and unless we we go back in time we're not really gonna know um but i think i think we can we can know for sure that that they laughed um they would have found really? stuff oh yeah i mean you know primates laugh in their own way they they find things funny um they make you know they they make upset sounds if they're if they're hurt and things like that so yeah i'm sure neanderthals um you know cracked up at each other and and you know um cried <laughs> um but yeah in terms of where did they have a nice deep baritone or you know were they sort of squeaky i'm not really sure um i think we we need to sort of um get a bit further with that (laughs) (laughs) uh so i've got another question from the magazine team now um what shape or structure did their social groups take uh was it families or was it more extended groups um it looks from the archaeology like most of the time we're looking at pretty small groups um what we don't seem to have is any evidence for very large sort of you know agglomerations of people um however we don't actually really have that for early homo sapiens um contemporary with them we do see it somewhat later like ten thousand years later you start to see these big houses in um you know, in Russia, built with mammoth bone and stuff, but that's later, and that looks like there was some kind of, you know, long-term seasonal settlement, perhaps, um, or sites that were returned to, or sites that were gathering places. We can't see that for Neanderthals, really, but we don't see it for early Homo sapiens either. So um, I think what we can say from the archaeology is that they were potentially separating into even smaller little groups and um, so we we would expect as hunter gatherers that they would not be living in large groups anyway um, you know 25 people maybe um as an average um for the group that you would spend most of your time with and and, and be with and travel with um but it looks like from some places where we have like extremely fine preservation and the the layering in our in our caves and rock shelters is so fine that we can actually pick out what seem to be single occupation events which is very very rare to be able to do that in the paleolithic um and it seems that certainly in the sites where we can do that there's one hearth and not many tools at all so in some places it looks like there may have only been a few of them there so is that because they lived in tiny groups or is that because somewhat larger groups were sort of splitting off to go off and do their own thing? Like some of them are off hunting and the others are waiting somewhere else. So I, I suspect it's the latter. I think there was some splitting of um, groups happening as they sort of just organised their lives and did stuff. Um, but what was the biggest size of the groups? That's really tricky because the opposite of 
you know, trying to find these single occupations is where you have bigger rock shelters where you would expect to fit more people in would be possible. Um, and we have layers where we can see, for example, um, 60 hearths. How many occupations does that really represent and how many hearths were active at one time? And, you know, if you can see that there is um, if you can finally separate that down and you've got like a sub layer with five hearths, you then have to start looking at really fine evidence like are artifacts moving between those hearths? Are they moving in both directions? Because if they are, that's much better evidence that those two hearths were active at the same time and therefore you're going to have potentially more people. Um, so in the cases where that happens, we can only really see two, possibly three different areas active at one time. So that may well be sort of these larger groups like 10 20 don't know something like that and so it's that kind of structure that we're looking at what was childhood like for neanderthals um childhood in the deep past is always really difficult to pick out um you know we we have an expectation you know that we've got such a rich history of childhood um from periods where we we have texts um and where we have objects that are quite clearly toys and things like this um but when you go into prehistory um of any period never mind neanderthals it does get a lot harder um i think what we can say is that small objects and not necessarily toys um for example if you have like tiny little little uh, hand axes for example um they're often quite tiny because they've just been resharpened a lot and they get smaller and smaller as they're resharpened so they're not necessarily anything specifically to do with children some of them might have been but as a category we can't say oh yeah they're toys um some of the sort of little objects that we find like the shells you know things like that 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 are collected um that don't seem to have a functional purpose um aesthetics is one aspect and and you know what do we do with children today we like them to play with brightly colored things because it helps them learn it keeps them interested you know so maybe that's one other explanation for some of these odd objects and pigments and you know stuff like that but really the best evidence that we have for Neanderthals having a childhood um, comes from evidence uh, to do with their bodies, really. Um, so we can see, because uh, we, we have, we're very lucky, we have um, remains of Neanderthals right from newborns um, who, you know, sadly died right through to teenagers. And, you know, we can see the teenagers are looking a bit physically awkward, you know, gross Bertie, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Um, but even in very little children, um, we can see they've, they're very active. Um, you know, they are physically active. They're doing a lot of stuff. Um, and certainly by the time they're like 11, 12, 13, they are really quite, you know, already quite well-built and muscly and stuff. So they were taking part in daily life. Um we can see on a on a boy from Spain, it looks like he was about, I think he's about eight or nine, and um, he had already been learning how to eat with a stone tool, um, where we, we have uh, this evidence on lots of different Neanderthals where you've got like tiny little scratches on their teeth from where they, they hold food in their mouth and then they use a stone tool to cut it off. Um, and he's doing that, but he doesn't yet have the where 
that we see on adult Neanderthal teeth from using their mouth as a tool for other things, like probably for holding onto skins to process them or other materials. So he hasn't really started doing that yet. But in, in other cases, it does look like little children were starting to practice that. So it's very interesting. But one of the nice things that I I really sort of find um, revealing is that out of the footprint sites that we have, which we do have, you know, um, several sites with Neanderthal footprints, or at least very likely to be based on the age, um, they're nearly all teenagers and children. Um, and so that's really interesting because it's showing that like little peer peer age groups were off doing their own thing um you know exploring and and that's exactly what we see in hunter many hunter gatherer children um they learn horizontally as well as vertically so you learn from your from your elders from your parents that's vertical learning but you also learn a huge amount from your from your peer group um and hunter-gatherer children will often sort of go off together in little independent foraging groups. They're playing, but they're also learning. Um, and I think that is certainly, there's this amazing French site, um, Le Rosel, it's called, where there's over a thousand prints and they're on this dune site. Um, and it just looks like the kids are just doing their own thing. You know, there's definitely adults around, but that sort of little insight into Neanderthal children definitely had um different life experiences to adults you know i think that's what we can we can say there was some aspect of childhood but that doesn't mean that um you know they would have followed a a childhood where they were not allowed to hold sharp stuff because again you know in traditional societies or hunter gatherer societies you will see very small children walking around with quite sharp stuff and that's just normal you know that's how they learn um so i think it's that kind of setting that we can imagine little gangs of kids off you know exploring doing stuff around the edges of whatever the adults are doing maybe finding their own little bits of food bringing it back stuff like that uh now i've got another question from twitter simon asks neanderthals were the dominant hominid species in europe for over thirty thousand years what stopped them from evolving or developing a recognizable civilization or did they uh well I suppose, I mean, civilization is a bit of a tricky word. Um, you know, hunting and gathering peoples have their own culture. I wouldn't want to call, you know, I think civilization is, if you mean like, why did they not build cities? Um, well, you know, there's plenty of people all around the world today that don't live in cities and they are, you know, as as intelligent, as as evolved as, as anybody else. And, um, you know, the, the reasons for why cities developed are extremely uh, specific and contextual and um, to do with, you know, I'm not a Neolithic expert, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we did not develop cities and, and all of that for tens of millennia after the Neanderthals had, um, had disappeared. So um, if the question is, would Neanderthals ever have, you know, driven around in cars... I don't know. Um, I don't know. That's speculative fiction. I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, that's fair enough. Um, so, given that humans, ancient humans and Neanderthals clearly interacted with each other, what would it have been like for an ancient Homo sapiens to encounter a neanderthal would they have recognized them as the same or as different would it would they have would they have 
seen them as the same sort of being? Is is that possible to answer? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, they would have been recognised as another kind of human, I think. And, you know, there's... (sighs) you can kind of play devil's advocate and say, well, maybe all of the interbreeding situations, it was like some kind of weird bestiality situation. But actually, I did look into bestiality research for this book for this very reason. (laughs) (laughs) And um, (laughs) there's a lot of it. Um, But uh, that is usually to do with, um, like, agricultural settings, for example. (laughs) you have access to animals um and it's it's i don't think it's the same situation at all um i think neanderthals we're pretty sure that they would have had some form of garments um more or less depending on the kind of climate that was happening but um they would have been wearing something they were carrying tools you know they were walking bipedally they they did not look like the other entities within the world, you know, quadrupeds that you hunt. And, you know, that's not to say that those, that every, nobody in the Pleistocene had, had relations uh, as in like understandings of other animals as, as a sort of having a personhood or, you know, agency and how they thought and things like that. Cause that's a, that's a typical, um way that indigenous communities and hunter-gathering peoples do understand the world that way it's about relationality and you know it's not the same as western understanding of animals as sort of resources you know it's very different um but i think with neanderthals um whether or not sexual relations were consensual i would imagine some of them were and some of them weren't um there was no doubt that they were understood as a different kind of human, for sure. So, yeah, do, do you think if we'd seen a Neanderthal, we'd have just thought of them as a sort of particularly ugly human? Or mm, No, um, you know, every, everyone got their personal taste. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you look at some of the reconstructions of Neanderthals, um, how we want to portray them has changed hugely over time and you look at modern reconstructions and they do look very much just like a different kind of person and some of them are quite attractive I think <laughs> <laughs> there is a famous there's one that um that I think looks a bit like Daniel Craig um from a from a Belgian site he's got a sparkle in his eye and you know it's it's our biases at the end mm. of the day um, and I think we should remember that interaction where you 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 are making babies somebody's raising the baby um we don't know exactly in which um group uh you know hybrid children ended up um but some of them likely ended up in in our um <coughs> culture um and those babies had to, had to have been looked after they had to have been loved cared for been able to grow up and integrate into homo sapiens culture to understand how we lived to find their own partners and have their own babies otherwise we wouldn't have that dna in us so that speaks to a level of compatibility to me um you know just whether or not their origins came from you know from love and desire 
or something more, you know, aggressive, um, there, there must be some kind of very basic compatibility in a cognitive and a social sense. Yeah, it's really interesting what you were just saying about sort of we've, we view, we depict Neanderthals how we want to see them. In your book, you've got these amazing illustrations by the artist, is it Tom Bjorklund? Yeah. And he's he's depicted them as, well, in a way, they seem to be quite human because he's shown them as sort of thoughtful and caring in ways that I've not really seen Neanderthals being depicted before. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many wonderful reconstruction artists um and some of the people that do sculpting a lot and there's a french artist um elizabeth uh, dane and um the kennis brothers as well they've done the pieces in the natural history museum for example and they are absolutely beautiful you know like you see the pictures of them but when you're face to face with them they have a real presence um but i especially like tom's work because it really sort of personifies this trend over the last 50 years to allow Neanderthals to be happy you know um that they were not sort of just miserable and waiting to go extinct um you know and of course they had happy lives you know hunter-gatherer lifestyles are hard they can be really tough but they're also have relaxation and comfort and joy and pleasure and you know so there's no reason why we should sort of always think of Neanderthals as having like you know either a sad face or or a serious face you know or you know I'm sort of battling the elements um I like his work because it it does bring out that that understanding of them as another sort of human you know um and that they they could be intimate they could be thoughtful they could be caring um and there's another nice sculpture that does that um is uh from gibraltar um which is especially touching actually because the two fossils from gibraltar it's two skulls one is a woman um from uh, forbes quarry she was one of the first neanderthal skulls to be found 1848 but wasn't recognized as such for a little while um and the other one was uh, the Devil's Tower Child, which was found much later um, in uh, the 1920s by Dorothy Garrett, fantastic uh, pioneering women archaeologist. And those two Neanderthals lived tens of millennia apart, um, but they've made this beautiful sculpture where um, the woman is sort of standing and the little child is kind of like holding her around the waist. And I love that because, you know, they never met in life. Um, but it's it's that sort of showing that the strength of bonds which we absolutely know must have been there between parents and children um that's a given you know that the neanderthal um children would have been intensely attached to their parents um just as we see in ourselves just as we see in other apes um so you know i really love that um that representation for that reason yeah, my favourite of the uh, illustrations is the one where the, there's a dad and he's got his his like child just sitting on his shoulders and it just seems like yeah. such, a, such a parent thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I like that because it could be a dad or it could be someone else in the group. Oh, yeah. That <laughs> idea of, of, of um, you know, was parenting shared? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and where there definitely were some Neanderthals that probably would have been grandparents just because of the age, like, you know, 40 plus it's not that this is another idea that they all died like when they were 30 no um there were definitely some old 
old timers around um and you know they would have had to the ripe old age of 40 40 50 you know 50 plus um the the forbes quarry woman was definitely well over 40 um and so presumably they would have had their own children and seen their children have children and you know it's interesting to to think about what were ideas of relatedness and did they understand like lineage and kin in that way quite probably um, and you know, the, if if they're old, then they have a lifetime of experience. Um, that's extremely valuable in hunter gatherer communities. You know, so yeah, I kind of, I think those depictions really sort of make us question our assumptions. I like them. Right, and uh, now I think just time for one last question. Uh, what is your absolutely favourite thing about the Neanderthals? <laughs> I like that they always surprise us. You know, they've they've. <laughs> us on our toes <laughs> uh, for so long um you know and we they, they're a foil for what we want to be what we're afraid of um they've played that role for so long and they refuse to sort of sit still and be put in a box i like that i like that that was dr rebecca ragsykes her book kindred Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art is on sale now, published by Bloomsbury. For more interviews like this with the brightest names in science and technology, be sure to check out the Science Focus podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Ken Follett will be talking about his new historical novel, The Evening and the Morning. <laughs>